Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Amen. If you're visiting us, we're at the process or in the process of going through a study through the book of Acts. And we're looking at the history of the early church. I suppose those of you that are here every week get tired of hearing that, but I have to <laughs> introduce it, right? And where we're at is we're in the process of following the, the Apostle Paul while he's journeying on his second missionary trip. And today's subject, as we look at a portion of chapter 18, is fear becomes joy in a turn of events. Fear becomes joy in a turn of events. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 17. Verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now... I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the story of Joseph, but Joseph was a man who for approximately 17 years had a very hard time. I mean, he was taken by his brothers, he was, it was pretended that he was slain by an animal, lied to the dad, they took him and chucked him in a pit and then eventually sold him as a slave and then it just continues just to get from bad to worse he goes into Potiphar's house as a slave and he kind of is elevated in the house but then Potiphar's wife hits on him and um, he refuses to oblige her and he gets um, he gets himself in further trouble because she cries rape which was a lie and he gets sent to prison I mean just season after season after constant just decline in his life bare drama 
And not for a couple of months, you know. 17 years of darkness. And then, whilst he's in prison, after predicting the future of the baker and the butler, remember because of their dreams he interpreted them, they went, come out of prison, completely forgot about him, until one of them stood before the king and Pharaoh said, I had a dream but I don't understand it. And the man was like, oh, there's a guy who's um, actually in prison who can interpret your dream, who I said I'd help out but I completely forgot about. He can interpret your dream. So they, they get Joseph and overnight, with a shave and a shower, he goes into the palace of Pharaoh and becomes the prime minister, second in command over all Egypt. Overnight. You talk about darkness to light. Sometimes terrible circumstances can be changed overnight. Last week we saw Paul continue on his second major mission trip. I was waiting for his companions, right? His spirit was provoked as he saw the city was full of idols and he shared the gospel in a very relational and effective way among these Athenians. And it was the same message that he has been preaching about Jesus and the resurrection and he spoke particularly in verse 31 about the coming judgment. Now, if we look at verse 1 of our text. After this, Paul left Athens... And he went where? He went to Corinth. If you have a look at the map real quick. He left Athens, and it wasn't a very long journey. I think it's about 46 miles. He traveled from Athens, and he comes to this place called Corinth. Now, Corinth, along with Athens, are both in a province called Achaia, which is in southern Greece. Now, Corinth was situated on an island and it had ports, it had one port to the east and it had another port to the left. And this made this a major trade route. It was the capital of this province and Julius Caesar had rebuilt this city 46, in 46 BC. Um, it was world famous for its athletic events, its wealth and its culture, its political prestige even to the point where this city took precedence over Athens. We realize from Paul's later letter to these Corinthians that not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble in this city of Corinth would listen, but yet many would be affected by the gospel. Just behind the city, nearly 2,000 feet above sea level, stood the temple of Venus. Got a picture of Venus here. She was known as the goddess of love. And it's funny, isn't it? Because she was very sensual, very seductive looking. You can see her semi-naked. And she had a son. Anybody know her son's name? Her son's name was Eros. I wonder if you could just turn down my mic just a little bit. Eros. Now, if, if his mum was scantily or semi-clad, semi-naked, he's virtually naked. I don't know if you've ever seen the statue of Eros. Is it Piccadilly Circus? Half naked. He's just got one little piece of, piece of cloth just over the important portions. Eros is where we get our word erotic or arousing or gratifying or highly susceptible to sexual stimulation. And it comes as no great surprise then that where Athens, the previous city, was predominantly identified by idolatry, Corinth, this city, was identified by immorality, which is illicit or unlawful sexual behavior. The temple here Check this. The temple here employed over 1,000 prostitutes, which were paid, check it, were paid for by public funds. Their purpose was to serve men in worship of the fertility gods so their flocks and cattle would be fertile. I mean, 
You'd think that a religion like that would still be around today, right? I mean, free sex on a Sunday down at the temple. Well, I suppose it still does actually exist. But instead of calling it a temple, we probably call it a nightclub. See, false religion is more subtle nowadays, but it still exists. Paul went straight to the heart of the matter when he will later write to these Corinthians when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. You see the combination of the two? Sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality. Very often you get sometimes, and people ask, where in the Bible does it say that homosexuality is wrong? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. So Paul writes to this, this community that is saturated with sexual immorality. Now on this second journey, Paul has visited a few places. He's visited Galatia, which is where we've been. He's also visited Thessalonica. And now he's in Corinth. Next week, he's going to visit Ephesus. Now, do these places seem slightly familiar? Well, they should be because, as I said, they're places that we've already visited as we've been journeying through Acts. But they are also books in the New Testament, right? So if you start off with just the first four books of the New Testament, they're the Gospels. These are the, the biographies on the life of Jesus. I remember speaking to someone who first became a Christian. They started reading the Bible. They were like, where do I start? Start in Matthew. Started reading Matthew. Got to the end of Matthew thought, wow, this is heavy. Jesus is born. Jesus lives. And then he dies on a cross. Then they jump into Mark chapter 1 and they're like, but wait a minute. This not make sense. I thought I just read that Jesus was born. It's gone back to where I started in Matthew. And then you find the same thing happens when you get to Mark. And Luke, sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then also in John, right? The reason why they're all very similar, <clears throat> but yet distinct, is because if you like, there are four camera angles on the life of Jesus. Just looking at Jesus from, from different perspectives. They all say a lot of the same things, but they also contain things that are very different and unique to them particularly as books. So those are the four Gospels. Then you have the book of Acts, which is where we're at. And at the end of Jesus' life, he goes back to heaven and he gives his disciples a commission. And we see what happens in their lives as they work out this commission in the book of Acts. Because it's the acts of the apostles, what they did, right? But then, this other huge section of our New Testament, nine letters written by one person, the Apostle Paul. And all nine of these letters are letters to churches. Letters to churches, as we've seen, um, particularly with regard to those that he started, planted, or at some point will visit. I'm sure they say that he didn't actually plant the church in Colossians, Colossae or the church in Rome, but nevertheless, he writes to these churches, but particularly to those that he planted. And then after this main bulk of what they call the epistles, you have Another group of, of letters, because letters are epistles. Someone said, oh, I thought epistles were the wives of the apostles, but no. Epistles are letters. And these letters, um, the further four that he writes are to individuals. You see them up there in red. And then the rest are writ written by other individuals to churches. First Thessalonians <clears throat> is considered one of, the, one of Paul's earliest letters that he wrote, if not the first, and it appears that Paul wrote this letter soon after arriving here where we are in Corinth. And this would put it somewhere around 52 AD. So Thessalonica is where we were just a few weeks ago, at least in the text that is. And while in Corinth, again about 52 AD, while in Corinth, verse 2, it says he found a Jew named Aquila. A native of Pontus, which is a place in North Galatia or northern Turkey, recently had come from Italy. 
So travelled from the west over the east towards Turkey and was and was staying there. And sorry, left from Pontus and went west to Italy and was staying there. But now they're actually in um, Corinth. And it says he was with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius was one of the, he was actually the Roman emperor. And apparently some of the Jews in Rome at this time had possibly become Christians. And this caused conflict with the unconverted Jews. And Claudius, the Roman emperor, he got fed up with the constant feuding and he extradited them. Extradited all the Jews because he was fed up with the drama and he just ran them out of town. So Aquila and Priscilla, they were probably Christians and then they find themselves here in this place called Corinth. And we'll see further, um, we'll see a little bit more about them next week. And it says, and Paul went to see them. Paul went to see this godly married couple um, who will eventually become very, very close fellow workers to Paul. Verse 3. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were what? They were tent makers by trade. They shared the same faith as well as the same trade. Tent making. They probably used the same materials that were used in curtains, in rugs, and clothing. And these items were used to also make tents. Now, why did Paul do this, that is, this work? Well, apart from the obvious reasons that we'll come back to, Paul determined not to be a burden to the church. Why did Paul do this work? Because Paul determined not to be a burden to the church, particularly in Corinth. Now, listen carefully to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as I read a, quite, probably about 10 verses out of 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 7. Listen to what Paul says. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Well... Surely no soldier. No soldier in Iraq or in Afghanistan is serving because, you know what I mean, they just think it's a good idea. They do think it's a good idea, evidently. You know what I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a big decision to, to do something like that. But they're evidently being supported by the British government, right? Which soldier serves at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Paul says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? I wonder if you can see Paul's line of reasoning yet. Verse 10, does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Now, you know if, if an ox is treading out the, cr- the grain, what ox is basically doing is he's working for the farmer, right? But as he's trodding out, the, as, he's, as he's either pulling the plow or he's turning a big stone wheel that's grinding the grain, what he's able to do is he's able to eat from the grain while he's treading it. And Paul says, do you muzzle the ox? Do you put a muzzle on the ox while he's working? And prevent him from eating while he's working. And he says no. But he says, is, is God speaking about oxen? Verse 10. Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher thresh in hope. Of sharing in the crop. Now, Paul says, if we, speaking personally. If we have sown spiritual things among you. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Verse 12 goes on to say, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, in the service of the temple, get their food from the temple? 
Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. So when the offerings were made, there were food, there were, you know, food offerings, animal sacrifices. The priests would take some of that food and they would, they would eat, they would, they would keep it and cook it and eat it. He says, now watch, he says, now this is his point. In the same way the Lord commanded, he's given about five or six examples. In the same way the Lord commanded, didn't even suggest it, he commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But, says Paul, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds of boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's saying, I'm going to preach the gospel regardless. Verse 17, but... For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I'm still entrusted with a stewardship, even if I didn't want to do it. This is what God has called me to do. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now that's a lengthy portion of the text. Well, how many of you know there are tent-making ministries today where individuals voluntarily relinquish their right to be supported financially. Preaching the gospel free of charge. They call it the principle of self-support where Christian ministers work for a living doing part or full-time secular work. And they do so based on a desire not to burden the Christians that they serve. Not to burden the Christians that they minister to. It may or may not surprise you to hear that we, that is the leadership team here, Pastor Patrick, Pastor Ephraim and myself, um, we've been doing the same thing here for seven years. Since we started the church in 2003, since... The Lord started the church, we would say. That is, voluntarily relinquish our right to be supported. Preaching the gospel free of charge. And as I'm sure many of you have noted, that doing ministry in this fashion comes with many challenges. And the main reason for mentioning this isn't to try to manipulate you or to try and coerce you in any way. But honestly, it's because it's come up in the text. And we try to apply the scriptures to our lives practically, don't we? Apart from the very first year, which is 2003, when we started the church, we received a year's support from Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa for that first year. Um, but since then, we received no salary. Now, we do feel that we are at a point where we're not sure how much longer we're going to actually be able to keep this up because we're, we're really growing as a, as a church and the demands are immense. But we really do look forward to a day when the local body here is able to support us. At the moment, about two-thirds of our income goes toward the, rent, uh, the renting of this school building. Any idea how much we pay for the, the school building in rent? Well, we, we pay £20,000 a year to rent the school for five hours a week. And um, we pay our rent and then we have a few thousand pounds left in the bank, kind of at the end of, you know, a season. Thank the Lord, we've never been in the red as a church. We've never been in debt. And we're really grateful to God for that. And we give thanks for Sarah, um, and also, that's Pastor Patrick's wife, and for Bruce, our accountant. They both together keep our books balanced. 
We're governed as, um, we're governed as a charitable organization, accountable to the Charities Commission. Our books are open and available to, to you as a church for your scrutiny at any time. Incidentally, we're, we're desiring to, <clears throat> at the beginning of next year, provide you as a church with detailed information regarding our income and our expenditure, just so that you know exactly what's going on with the money. We'd say that that's pretty important. And by the way, if, if you're visiting today or you're new to Calvary Chapel, South London, you may have been coming maybe for a few weeks or months, let me hasten to mention this is only the second time in seven years we've ever spoken about money as it directly relates to the church. I mention that because you may be here and you're like, oh boy, here we go again, money. Every time I go to some church, it's about money. This is the second time we've spoken about money in this fashion in seven years. For those of you that are familiar with, with us as a church, you know that we don't make a habit of doing this. Again, I mention it only because it comes up in the text and it directly relates to us and to the things that um, we are actually in the process of praying about. We hadn't even scheduled to talk about money for about another year. <laughs> but it's come up in the text. And so for the time being, we make tents. And so did Paul, working during the week, Monday to Friday, possibly Sunday to Friday, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Saturday. That is, every Sabbath. As was his custom. So, a temporary lack of resources, and you will see why I say temporary in a minute, a temporary lack of resources didn't prevent him from continuing, continuing as he always did. And we see that at the end of verse 4, he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks in regard to the gospel. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, which is where he had left them previously, right? Paul was occupied with the word. Another translation says he was pressed in the spirit. Or, I think probably a better translation, the Net Bible says, Paul, he became wholly absorbed with proclaiming the word. Basically, something happened when the brothers, that is Silas and Timothy, came from Berea. Their arrival bolstered Paul, providing him with fervency, eagerness, and zeal. It is suggested by commentators that Paul being joined, wow, by his friends, encouraged his heart greatly. Now that makes sense, right? But not just because of their companionship, but because they also brought along a financial gift from Berea or from which was in Macedonia and this gift provided for Paul financially so that he didn't need to continue tent making and he could give himself entirely to the ministry of the word he could he could become wholly absorbed with proclaiming the word in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 just before verse 7, Paul compares himself to what he calls the super apostles. I don't know if you read 2 Corinthians 11. These super apostles were the religious teachers who were very flamboyant, but cunning deceivers. They were motivated by an unholy spirit, proclaiming another Jesus, promoting a different gospel. Yet these quote-unquote ministers of God who came across as very impressive, Paul calls them super apostles. But they're actually the opposite. They're false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, just like their master Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. In the very same chapter, listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 11, same chapter, where he mentions these super apostles, right? These false apostles. Verse 7. Or did I commit a sin 
And remember, he's writing to Corinth, the same church that we're talking about. He says, well, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to, to you free of charge? He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, which are who? Silas and Timothy, they supplied my need. So you can see why Paul is encouraged greatly. One, because he's glad to see them, glad to see his brothers. He ain't seen them for a minute. He had the whole difficult heart-churning Athens experience with the idolatry, right? He was on his own, and so that's one reason he's glad to see them. But two, because of the wonderful financial gift he received from the Christians in Macedonia. And it wouldn't be the last time. They will continue to support Paul's ministry later on, particularly the church in Philippi. That was where God opened Lydia's heart, remember? Where they were praying by the river, because there was no synagogue at that time. In Philippians chapter 4, this church that is now established, again, Paul writes this letter much later. Paul says to them, listen, verse 14 in chapter 4, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It's funny how he refers to that trouble in, in the previous portion, his burden. He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, which is exactly where we are in Acts chapter 18. The gospel is only just beginning to go out to the world. He says, you know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, verse 17, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's great when support comes from outside. What a blessing this is to Paul who's struggling because he's wanting to share the gospel but he's having to work in order to support himself. How many of you know that, I mean I mentioned the three of us earlier, but how many of you know that Mark, Neil, um, <clears throat> Pastor Ephraim and myself um, are all at Bible school and we have to, we have to all work part time and raise funding which we receive from Christian trusts. See other Christians are providing for us so that we can do ministry here. We're robbing other churches if you like to do ministry here. And the funding runs out for three of us next June. Hopefully, as I mentioned earlier, we can get to a point here at South London as we grow um, where we can provide for our own. Amen. So Paul is excited and he continues serving God. Look at the middle of verse 5. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. We've seen now on a, a number of times how we did that, not least of all last week. So we won't stop here. We won't, we won't um, exegete that portion. Verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. Now this is quite a picture. Literally shaking off his robes or shaking off the dust from the synagogue that he's in out of his garments. It's like, he wants to get everything in there out of him, off of him. Because he's absolutely disgusted by the way they've opposed him and they've reviled him. So he shakes off his garments, declaring his, his, his abhorrence to their rejection. It was a very emotive action. A little bit like one, you might read, um, particularly in the Old Covenant, of individuals renting or tearing their garments. You know, 
can't believe which one of the minor prophets it mentions it in, but he says, he says, rend your heart, not your garments. I remember back in the day when my mum used to quote the Bible, she'd say, you know, God don't business with what you come to church dressed in. So like, I mean, I got a suit on today. Now, how unusual is this? You know what I mean? I think I tend to only wear suits to weddings. You know what I mean? Or funerals. But I was, who was I talking to? I was talking to um, Jide and Funke last week as we were doing um, one of their interviews for, for membership. And we were just chatting about kind of dress and so on. I think Jide must have said something. Oh, you'd probably look nice in a suit or something like that. And I thought, you know what? Cha. Next week's Remembrance Sunday. I'm going to put on a suit next Sunday. Why not? You know what I mean? And um, my mum would say, Rend your heart, render your heart and not your garments. Meaning, you know, it doesn't matter what you come to church with as long as your heart is God's, yeah? But that's not what the verse actually means. It's rend. You know what I mean? Not give up like rend. It's rend, like tear your garments. And that Old Testament was prophet was just talking about being, you know what I'm saying, being in a place of just, it's where your heart is torn and you express it by tearing your garments. You see the picture? And this is what, this is what Paul is doing. But instead of rending and tearing his garments, he's shaking his garments. I mean, it was a picture. If you could imagine seeing Paul in the, in the synagogue doing this, you would, I think you'd appreciate that it was, it was a very emotive action. A little bit, as I said, like rending or tearing one's garments. And Jewish people are very emotional people. They're very expressive people. You see what I mean next week when you meet our, our guest speaker, Jacob Prash, who's Jewish, right? You say, oh, you say, yeah, I see what you mean, Robert. Paul, at the same time, quotes the prophet Ezekiel while he's doing this. So it's not just visual, it's also audible. And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. It's like, that's it, I'm fed up with you lot. As far as I'm concerned, I've told you, and if you don't want to hear the gospel and you want to go to hell, that's your business. He says, from now on, I'm, I'm going to the Gentiles. You lot don't want to hear it, safe. See, I suspect he was pretty worked up. Verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man called Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul, when he stormed out of the synagogue, he didn't get very far. He only made it as far as next door, where I suspect he had a chance to calm down. But look, Paul's efforts were not wasted. Someone heard him ranting in the synagogue and they were affected by the gospel look at verse 8 crispus and it wasn't just any and anybody crispus the ruler of the synagogue believed in the lord together with his entire household wow see even when you're frustrated and you think that nothing is happening like probably me right about now Today seems really kind of quiet and kind of dead. And I could get the impression that, boy, you know what, I'm just up here ranting and raving or whatever, and no one ain't he hearing me, no one ain't feeling this. It's like we could all be somewhere else doing something more interesting. I'm just saying that's how it feels. But even I need to encourage myself that when I'm feeling like this, God's word never returns void. Look at the middle of verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now you would think that Paul would be greatly encouraged and excited by these results. But he actually began to be fearful. And probably because people were getting saved. And especially an official from the synagogue. This would mean antagonism from the Jews. Maybe it's quiet in here because it's so cold. It's cold in here, isn't it? That's what it is. Wow. So Paul is really kind of concerned now because people are getting saved and he's like, oh no. I know what happens when people begin to get affected by the gospel. And maybe Paul is beginning to get very discouraged. Now, how do I know that Paul is discouraged? Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. 
You see, fear becomes joy in a turn of events. The Lord says in this vision, do not be afraid. See, that's how I know Paul was afraid. Why is the Lord going to say, do not be afraid, if he wasn't afraid? And constantly throughout the Old Testament, God would have to say that to his people when they were confronted by difficult circumstances. Could it be that you might be confronted with difficult circumstances? If you are and you belong to the Lord, you're his people and he says to you, do not be afraid. He says, Paul, go on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? Because I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. That's encouraging words in those times when you're feeling fearful. The Lord says, For I have many in this city who are my people. Don't be afraid. In 1 Corinthians 2, we definitely know that Paul was afraid because at the beginning of his letter to this particular church, to these who are now getting saved, in the, in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, And I was with you, how? In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Sometimes we think about Paul, we think about Paul as being this great, amazing, formidable, brother coming like a Sherman tank-like. Nothing affects him. He just bores, just keeps on moving regardless. But no, Paul was a... He was a man of like passion, similar to us. And what a wonderful word of encouragement from the Lord during a difficult time for Paul. This morning, um, in the announcements, we heard about the persecuted church. You know, maybe we can just kind of you know, spare a thought for those who are not like us, you know. I mean, all we got to worry about right about now is, man, it's kind of cold in here. Even to the point of grumbling, right? <laughs> kind of coal in here that's all we got to worry about or then maybe you might have some drama that's a little bit stepped up from that you might be having relation relationship drama you might be having career like work type drama but i suppose when you spare a thought for the persecuted church and those who are in the process of leaving the process of losing their lives then our drama kind of gets minimized doesn't it Our drama doesn't seem as dramatic. And what a wonderful word of encouragement as you go for a a real time of drama. Paul must have been greatly encouraged by this night vision. And it's beautiful because this is the second time we've seen the Lord speak to Paul in a vision. And you know, very often we get accused right now of not believing in the gifts of the Spirit. Oh my goodness. How are we going to function without the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Without the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? And sometimes it can seem as if, yeah, we've thrown out the baby, as it were, with the bathwater. But, mm-mm. And when it comes to dreams and visions, we believe that the Lord can give us dreams and visions. But I think I would suggest that if you're sitting down on your bottom and you ain't doing nothing, you know what I'm saying? I'm talking about in terms of the work of the kingdom. Don't, don't be expecting no dreams and visions. Maybe the only dream or vision you might get is one of conviction. And I say that because, you know what? About, 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 about six weeks ago, I had this dream. Now, I'm a brother. I don't dream. When I go to sleep at night, the, the only thing I know is when I open my eyes and I'm awake. I don't dream. I don't know, I don't know if it's... I, I don't know why. But then, on the odd occasion, I will get a dream. And not all the time, but any time I do get one, it, you know what I'm saying? It's like, wow, I had a dream last night. And um, maybe it's because I just sleep so deep, I don't even remember. I don't know. I had a dream a couple of months back. And when I tell you this dream was so vivid, it weren't funny to the point where I, I actually woke up. I mean, I was cognizant. Woke up, got up out of my bed and started walking around the room thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And you were like, about what, Robert? About this dream that I just had. And it wasn't even this dream that I just had. It was, like, it, it was like I stepped out of the dream into reality while I was still in the dream, thinking that what happened in the dream was real. And I thought, man, I want... And for about a day or two, I didn't say anything to anybody. But it was so pressing on me. I said to Helen, look, she just walked in. I said to my wife, I said, Helen, I had this mad dream. And I told her. And she said, boy, you just pray about it, innit? So I did. 
but I couldn't get it off my mind. So the individual that was in the dream, I went to and I said, you know what, I had this dream and I, I don't, it might not mean nothing, da 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 told this person the dream, they looked at me and they said, are you serious? Someone else has mentioned that before. And then, nothing happened. Until about a week later, when this person that I spoke to turned around and said to me, Robert, you see the dream that you had? Every single thing that happened in a dream has just happened. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm a prophet? You can come to me afterwards and I, and I can tell your future. No, it don't mean that at all. <laughs> I'll probably mess up. I'll probably wreck your future. <laughs> doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean, I would argue, that God still speaks through dreams and visions. So the, so the Lord, well, at least the Lord did. Can't, you might argue with me that he does, but you can't argue that he did with Paul. And he comforts Paul in this vision, doesn't he? The Lord assuring Paul that he wouldn't have to undergo any violent abuse this time around, at least. The Lord had many people in this city. Aquila and Priscilla, as we saw earlier, they were in this city. Crispus, who's now been, become a Christian, right? He's obviously in this city and evidently others also. But we also recognize that there were many who were going to become God's people in this city. And I suspect we also have God knowing and determining those yet to be saved through the preaching of the gospel. So armed with God's promise of security now and, and, and a bit of encouragement verse 11 says and he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them verse 12 but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia see after a, a process of time this is now about AD 53 Gallio becomes proconsul of Achaia the Jews then made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal now this is amazing because up until now every time the Jews kind of launch an attack it's like and Paul feels the full force of it I mean it might be in a situation where someone has launched a full force attack against you check it a united attack you know that's man drawing for man's now It'd be bad enough if one person was coming at you, but you, you got the whole street coming for you. A united attack. And up until now, anytime this happens, Paul is just, Paul, Paul, you can see just Paul just kind of holding his, his head in his hand saying, I know what's coming next. But it's really interesting what actually does happen, as we'll see in a minute. So the Jews, they launched this united attack on Paul. And they bring him before the tribunal, saying, verse 13, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And you can see Paul just counting down 10, 9, 8, just getting ready for licks and beating and scourging and whipping and throwing into prison, stoning like he had, had back at Lystra. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, is this, are they talking about Roman law or are they talking about Jewish law? Well, if it's Roman law, it's that same old stale strategy that they've used before. Accusing Paul like Jesus, he's going against Caesar, Roman law. But it could also be that they were referring to Jewish law. That he's going against the law of our forefathers because Jewish law was what they call Religio licita versus illegal religion, which was religio illicita. So it was like, our religion's legal and he's going against it. Either way, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, possibly in defense, he didn't have to. Why? Because Gallio, the Roman proconsul, butted in, saying to the Jews, you know what? All of this argument out here. He says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing, like the man had broken some kind of major law, 
like Roman law, that was going to affect us. If the man had, had if, if it was a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, old Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, possibly the reference to Jewish law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge over these things. Like, get them out of here. And he does. Verse 16, and he drove them from the tribunal. And check it. And this is the turn of events now. And they all seized Sosthenes, who had evidently succeeded Crispus. Now Crispus was the, the high priest. So Crispus was the, the head of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue. But Crispus, we just heard a little while ago, got saved. Remember? Paul's ranting and raving, your blood's on your own hands, blah, blah, blah. Crispus is like, man, I believe this. He gets saved. So evidently, he ain't going to continue to be the ruler of the Jewish synagogue. So he gets, so they replace him with Sosthenes. <laughs> Poor Sosthenes. The ruler of the synagogue. And look what they do. They take, they take him and they beat him in front of the tribunal. Now this is amazing. It seems as if the tables are actually turned, but on the Jews this time. Instead of Paul and the Christians getting a beat down, the heathen crowd, in an act of mob violence, attacked the Jews who are persecuting Paul. And they beat up the head honcho, the ruler of the Jewish synagogue. <laughs> the end of verse 17 says, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. It's like, child, them Jews get on my nerves, it's always causing trouble, blah, blah, blah. Look, they're beating up my, whatever. And he goes about his, his, his Roman duties. He didn't pay no attention. So we begin to see a new turn of events. Where Roman law, check it, was used about 20 years ago to crucify Jesus. It was now being used to protect the followers of Jesus. I mean, the Lord really meant what he said back in verse 10. Paul, trust me. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. <laughs> They're just going to harm Sosthenes. Verse 18 begins by saying, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. And I don't blame him. The Christians must have been so happy. I mean, I would have been laughing at the fact that Sosthenes got a beating. That's me. I've got a wicked heart. Paul and his companions were probably really spiritual. And they probably prayed for Sosthenes. <laughs> prayed for those that beat him up. And prayed for Sosthenes and probably laid hands on him because he, he was probably wounded. But now... They had the chance to freely communicate and share the gospel openly without fear. The fear that they had becomes joy in a turn of events. Amen. What we're going to do is we're going to pick up from verse 18 when we come back next week. I mentioned Joseph at the beginning. And... Um, Joseph was a guy that went through a difficult time if you came in late. Could it be that you're going through a difficult time and you just feel like, you know what? It's, this has happened so many times in my life. It's been so consistent to the point where I, I know what's coming next. And as far as hope is concerned, that's gone out the window a long time. Because you know, whether it was because of something you did, and here comes the implications, here come the repercussions, or it's because you never done nothing. But you know that just being faithful to Jesus at work, at school, at college, at uni, it just brings repercussions. And you get tired. You be like, Lord, you know, I do, Lord... I do love you. But phew, I'm not surprised. I heard someone say, I'm not surprised, Lord, you have as few friends you do 
as the way that you treat the ones that you have. It's hard. It's hard being a Christian. It's rough. You know what I mean, again, we talked about the persecuted church. I mean, <laughs> but what we what we see as rough compared to them, it pales into insignificance. Yet, it doesn't take away from the pain that we feel when we go through hard times. So, with that in mind, would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you because as much as we don't necessarily have a promise that everything will go well in this life, we have a great promise that everything will go extremely well in the next life. And that's like an anchor to our souls. I was so grateful for that. So grateful that, Lord, even a weeping endures for a night. And Lord, I know for some of my brothers and sisters it might be, they've been weeping for weeks or for months or maybe even for years. And on that, on that basis, we thank you that we have heaven to look forward to where there will be no more cries, crying. There will be no more weeping. There will be no more tears. Thank you for that. So encouraged by that. But Lord, we also thank you that even though we don't have a dedicated promise that everything is going to be all right, like the super apostles say, that we're going to be rich, we're going to drive the best car, we're going to have the biggest house, we're going to have the, the greatest job, have the perfect you know, life, perfect kids. It's, it's madness. Those super apostles are liars. That's not true, Father. And so we thank you that you silenced that voice as far as we're concerned because we're concerned about listening to what you say in your word. And we know that those who live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution. Father, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Father, I pray that even in the midst of the difficult times, we see that sometimes you bring a ray of hope, a little bit of respite, Lord. You bring a little bit of joy in the midst of the difficult times down here. And that's what I pray for, for just my brothers and my sisters, the rest of the family here, Lord. And even those who are visiting, Lord, who are not necessarily a part of the family here. Pray, Father, that you would give us encouraged hearts, even in the midst of the darkness and the difficult times. And even, Lord that you might even turn around events to some degree and shock us and surprise us, Lord. We might be lonely and you might bring brothers and sisters alongside just like you did with Silas and Timothy. Paul was so encouraged. But Lord, he was working, grinding, working hard, Lord, trying to make ends meet and do the ministry, Lord. And not only did he see them, but they brought wonderful relief financially for him. What a blessing. But Lord, I also pray for those, Lord, are going through circumstances that I don't know. Only you know, Lord. And pray, Father, that you might even turn around their circumstances. And, Lord, that they'd be able to lift their hands and, and, and with tears running down their eyes, Lord, rejoice, Lord. And not just necessarily be <sighs> bemoaning or wailing or distressed. They raise their hands in distress anyway. Tears are running down their, their face. But Lord, could, could it be that, Lord, just for a moment, Lord, that the tears that run down might be tears of joy and tears of relief, Lord. Think of so many here, Lord, that can be in that situation. But we look to you because we can't provide it for ourselves, Lord. You're the one that we, we trust in. Pray that you give people just dreams and visions, Lord, as they serve you, Lord. And lead them and guide them and direct them as, as far as the future is concerned. Lord, who do we have, Lord, on earth or in heaven apart from you? Thank you, Lord. And I pray that your people would be encouraged today by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.